Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel chapter 17. My name is David. I am the pastor here. Um, one reminder before we jump into the passage for today. Last week, um, we talked about kind of this prayer challenge for the summer. We've got about eight weeks of the summer, and I encourage slash challenge you to grab onto something specific to pray for. We have a God who hears prayers, a God who's moved by our prayers, and so maybe the summer rhythm's a little bit different, may give, create some space for you to um, be persistent in prayer. We talked about these two guys, beautiful men there, John Hyde on the left, George Muley on the right, just as inspiration. John Hyde was a guy who prayed for people to come to faith. One year he prayed every day for one person to come to faith, and over the course of those 365 days he led 400 people to the Lord. So the next year he prayed for twice that many. And over the course of that year, he led over 800 people to the Lord. And so there may be someone in your life who you love who's far from Jesus. And between now and when school starts back in the beginning of August, maybe you want to make an extra effort in terms of your intentionality to pray for God to open their eyes. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you live in this city, then most likely you're rich by any standard globally or historically. And so to ask the Lord, help open people's eyes, give them uh, a recognition of their need for a Savior. They grow weary of the things that they're chasing. Recognize those things aren't going to fulfill. Whatever that prayer is, to ask the Lord to begin to draw those men and women to himself. George Mueller on the right, he ran five orphanages for about 60 years in England, and he never asked for a dime. And over the course of those 60 years, he prayed $244 million in and through those orphanages. Took care of over 10,000 kids. And maybe for you, what you want to pray for or pray about is some situation that seems really large, something that for you seems impossible. Maybe it's a health issue that's a chronic condition. You're like the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and spent all the money you have on doctors and nothing's getting better. And maybe you want to ask the Lord the next two months to heal you physically. Maybe it's something in your finances. Maybe it's something in a relationship. I don't know. But what would it look like for you to take some time consistently and intentionally over the next eight weeks to pray for God to work in that circumstance. You can do both. Pray for a person and for a situation. Just as a, a, a marker on your week, if it's helpful, we pray every Tuesday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. We'd love for you to come. It's dropped in. The first 30 minutes is contemplative. There's just instrumental music playing. We, there's communion up here that you can take as you want, and you'll just, you can just sit. You can sit here in the chair and pray uh, quietly. Uh, and then from 7 to 7.30, we pray uh, corporately for our church and for our city. But that may be a, just a stake in the ground for you every week as a way of saying I'm, in, I'm prioritizing prayer over the next eight weeks. And as God works, please let us know. We love testimonies of how God uh, is working. All right, Second Samuel 17. So it's going to be a bit of a slog. I'll go ahead and tell you. But we're going to do our best. So this is where we were last week. If you remember, so David is... David's over here at the Jordan River. He's got his family with him. He's got two to 3,000 of his personal bodyguard with him. Absalom, his son, is in Jerusalem, and he's leading a coup. So Absalom enters Jerusalem, and he, and he uh, sleeps with ten of David's concubines, ten concubines that David left behind as a way of saying, I'm serious. I, I want the throne. I'm burning every bridge with my dad. I'm serious about saying I am the king. And then what Absalom wants to know is, so, so what do I do about David? I know he's run away. How do I handle him as my chief rival, as the chief threat to my ambition? And he asked two guys for help. He asked a guy named Ahithophel, and he asked a guy named Hushai. Both of those guys were in David's inner circle. They were considered wise men. And so Ahithophel is someone, he's Bathsheba's granddad, so he's got some animosity towards David most likely. And he is loyal to Absalom. He has flipped allegiances, and he is on Absalom's team. And when he talks, the Bible says it's as if someone inquired of the Lord. His words are incredibly wise, incredibly profound. And he says to Absalom, here's what you need to do. You need a quick strike, and it needs to be surgical. Let's leave tonight. Your dad is disoriented. He's tired. Let's pounce while he is in that. Before he has time to regroup and, and, and prepare, let's take 12,000 troops that's an overwhelming force compared to two or 3,000 that David has. But it's not so many that we have to take a lot of time to gather them. We can get them now and we can go and let's just kill David. If we take him out, then everyone who's aligned with him will flow back to you. There won't be anybody 
for them to support. Great advice. Hush, but, but then Absalom says, I want a second opinion. And so he goes to Hushai and says, what do you think I should do? Hushai was someone who also had been in David's inner circle. But he is still loyal to David. David sent him back to Absalom as a spy. And so Hushai has gotten uh, accepted into Absalom's inner circle. And Absalom says to him, what do you think we should do? And, and, and Hushai gives him awful advice. And what he says to him is, I think you should take your time. You don't want to go half-cocked. Your dad is a great warrior. These men with him are all battle hardened veterans if you go out there just kind of by the seat of your pants you're going to get slaughtered and all these guys are going to leave you you need to take your time you need to get a huge army let's let's recruit from all over the nation and then you lead them and don't just go after david you wipe out all of them it's this grand grandiose plan that appeals to absalom's ego and the key verse for us was right there in verse 14 absalom and all the men of israel said the advice of hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. It wasn't. It was way worse. But Absalom and his men said it was better. How come? Because the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. That's a key idea for us. Because God had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. So David gets word of both of these plans, and so then he jumps the Jordan River. He crosses the Jordan River to put some a barrier between him and Absalom. The, the, the river's about 100 feet wide. And so now David is on, if you're looking at it, the right side of the Jordan River, and Absalom is still in Jerusalem. And what we're going to look at today is how the Lord brings disaster on Absalom. So David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan and all the men of Israel, with all the men of Israel. So now Absalom has crossed the Jordan River as well. We don't know how much time there is in between the two. I would think a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe a couple of months, but it's not immediate because Absalom has gathered a large army, so that would take a little bit of time. So Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Joab is with David. Amasa was the son of Jether, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and the sister of Zeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. So Amasa is David's nephew, and now he's leading the army against him. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery and wheat and barley flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. They said the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. So David now is in this town, and you'll see it up there on the slide. It's in the top right corner of that picture, Mahanaim. It's a walled city, and so David and his family and these 3,000 troops, I think he has 3,000 troops, David and these 3,000 troops are in this walled city, and they don't have anything. They left Jerusalem really fast, really quickly, so they don't have a lot of stuff, and I think for David, this is huge that these guys, these three men, supplied him. I think he's wondering, how many, who's with me? And who's with Absalom? How, how big is this conspiracy? Is there anyone who's still loyal to me? And you have these three men who come and bring a massive amount of supplies. If you can imagine the supplies it would take to take care of 3,000 plus people over the course of, even if it's just a couple of weeks, the massive amount of supplies that these guys give out of love and loyalty to David. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we're forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you're worth 10,000 of us. It'd be better now for you to give us support from the city. So David answered, I'll do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. That's a big idea. The king commanded these three commanders, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, and the, their troop, Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. So David and his guys are in this walled city. They're vastly outnumbered, but he's got the better soldiers. His guys are pros. Absalom has just recruited from 
all the regular people, all the men of Israel, they would have been part of the army. And so they're not used to fighting. So there's a lot of them, but they're not as good as David's fighters. And so David, he's undermanned, and so he picks the time and the place to fight. Kind of mitigate some of Absalom's advantage. They choose to fight in a forest, which also would mitigate some of Absalom's advantage with having all of these troops. And so David wants to go out, and his guys say, No, you stay here. He splits his troops up, I think, into three groups of a thousand, and he says to the commander of each one of those groups, to Joab, to Abishai, and to Ittai, Don't hurt Absalom. So you think about that. You're going out to fight a guy who is intent on killing you and your boss. And your boss says to you, go easy on him. Be gentle with him. And everybody heard what David said. So they go out, the battle, we don't get any details at all. David's guys rout the Israelites, 20,000 of them die. This cryptic statement, the forest swallows up more than the sword. I think you see God there. Uh, He's not, we don't get that attributed to him, but I think that's probably what's going on. God has determined to bring disaster on Absalom, and this is one of the ways that he's doing it. We don't see God get explicit credit for very much at all in this section, but I think you can infer pretty confidently that that's the Lord working. He's bringing judgment on Absalom, and that's one of the ways that he's doing it. This is one of the major pieces of action here. So now Absalom happened to meet David's men. Picture this. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Got it? It's good. (laughs) When one of David's men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who told him this, What? You saw him. Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels, uh, excuse me, the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hand, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. You hear what he's saying? You would have thrown me under the bus. You would not have backed me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. The ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him, and meanwhile all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, For he thought, I have have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. So you remember Absalom when he's introduced. He's the prettiest guy in the whole nation. Part of his beauty is his hair. He's got tons of it. His hair gets so heavy for him, he cuts it once a year. And when he cuts it, he's got five pounds of hair in his hand. So all that hair, representing all that vanity, gets caught in an oak tree. And his mule just keeps on going, and so he's hanging. I imagine at some point he's got to grab on with his hand so the hair doesn't rip out of his head. So this is him to me. His hair's all tangled up in the oak tree, and he's hanging there like this, and he's stuck. And one of David's soldiers sees him and doesn't know what to do. David said, go easy on him. But Joab has put a bounty on his head, ten shekels of of silver and a warrior's belt. And so there's some conflict in this soldier. He doesn't know what to do. His commander has said, kill him and I'm going to reward you. But his king has said, don't touch him. So he goes to Joab and says, I found him. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And he says, because if I killed him, David would find out. He finds out everything and you would have have run away from me. You would not have backed me. You would have left me hanging. And so I didn't do it. And Joab says, well, I'll do it. And he goes and he stabs him three times and then he has ten guys kill him with a sword. It's a lot. And then they throw Absalom in a pit and put rocks on him. It's a very unceremonious way of being buried. And we get this footnote. Absalom has had three sons. We knew that. And they must have all died because he built a monument for himself as a legacy because he had no children at that point. There was another king who also built a monument for himself, Saul. 
doesn't work out well for either of those. You see that God has promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. He says, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to leave a... Your legacy is going to be someone on the throne. To these two guys who he's rejected, Saul who was a king and Absalom who is a traitor, they don't have any children and they try to make a monument, they try to make a legacy for themselves and even that doesn't go anywhere. So Absalom is dead and now David's reaction, the other major piece of this section. Now Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of the enemy. So remember, no phones. So the only way to get information is for someone to run it. So Ahimez is saying, let me run this information back to David. You're not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Apparently, you picked a different messenger based on the news. And Joab didn't want to send bad news that Absalom was dead through this particular guy. Then Joab said to a Cushite, that's a foreigner, go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimez, the son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. But Ahimez said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimez ran by way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite, took a different route, and beat him there. While David was sitting between the inner and outer courts, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. So if David's guys got beat, there'd be a lot of guys coming back to the city. So the fact that there's only one coming back makes David think, okay, this is good news. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeepers, look, another man running alone. And the king said, he must be bringing good news too. And the watchman says, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimez, the son of Zadok. Well, he's a good man. He comes with good news. Then Ahimez called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. He says, praise be to the Lord your God. He's delivered, he has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? He doesn't even care about the battle. Is Absalom safe? And Ahimez answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. So that's a lie. He knows, he just doesn't want to tell him. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and he stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And the king was shaken. That word is used of the after effects of an earthquake. That's how deeply David felt this. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard that it said the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you've humiliated all your men who have just saved you in the lives of your sons and daughters and your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up, took a seat in the gateway. Then the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, and they all came before him. And meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. So you have this other army, and they all flee. We don't know what's going on with them. They're thinking, I fought for the wrong side. Who knows what's going to happen? So they all run home. David finds out that his son has died. All that stuff with the messengers. They get there and they tell him, and he has this deep response. He's shaken to the core. He's weeping and he's mourning. And the response of the soldiers is basically, did we do something wrong? They've won and they're acting like they've lost. They're ashamed of what they've done. 
They risked their lives. Remember, there's 3,000 of them. Absalom's army was more than 20,000. That's at least a three-to-one disadvantage. They took a huge risk for David and his family, and his response is to weep over the death of Absalom, who was trying to kill him and them. They don't know what to do, so they all slink off to their homes, and then Joab comes in and he scolds David, and rightfully so. He's like, what are you doing? These guys risked their lives for you. You're humiliating them. It makes us think that you would rather us be dead than your son, the one trying to kill you. If you don't get back out there and encourage your men and thank your men, they're all leaving. Every one of them is going to bail. You're not going to have anyone left standing with you. And David's able to hear that, and he takes his place in public where he can encourage and thank the men. And that's what we'll pick up next week with David moving back towards Jerusalem as the king. Don't love this section. Doesn't feel great to me. I don't know how it feels to you. There's two major actions. Absalom's death and then David's response. The battle itself, we get one verse. But Absalom's death and David's response are the two primary emphases in this section. And we'll see if we can pull one thing out of each that hopefully will help you in your own relationship with Jesus. When I think about Absalom's death, what I'm reminded of is Romans 8.28. That verse that we use anytime something bad happens in someone's life and we say, God works together all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To me, this is a picture of that. David loves God. You can read the Psalms and see that. And David is absolutely called by God. His calling is to be the king of Israel. God has placed him on the throne. And that's not just for David. That's for the entire nation. And what I see here is God working both for David's good and to accomplish his purposes in David's life as well as for the good of the nation and to accomplish his purposes in the life of the nation as a nation, corporately. Absalom is not just rebelling against his father. Absalom is rebelling against the king who has been placed on the throne by God. This is not an internal family squabble. This has national implications. God chose David, and only God can unchoose him. God picked David to be the king, and David will be the king until God decides David's not going to be the king anymore. And what we see with Absalom is him saying, no, it's my turn, and I'm going to take it. And what you see is God saying, no, you're not. Whatever we think about David, whether the last nine years he's been a complete delinquent, He has. He hasn't done anything to discipline his sons. It seems like he's taken his hands off the wheel in terms of leading the nation as well. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Absalom can do the job better. It doesn't matter if if Absalom is angry because of the way David has treated him. None of those things matter. David has been chosen by God, and only God gets to decide when David's done. And what Absalom's doing is asserting himself. He's saying, it's my turn. I can do a better job. I want this role. And we see God saying, you don't get it. God is fighting for David. God has said, I've determined to bring disaster on Absalom, not because he's rebelling against his father, but because he's rebelling against me. Because he has decided he's going to be the king, and that's not his decision to make. We see God working to bring out good or to to work for David's good and for the good of the nation. Last week we talked about our own freedom that we have as individuals, that God allows uh, himself to be influenced by us through prayer primarily, that God co-labors with us in work. He says, go and make disciples. That's his work. He says, come and do that with me. That God, because he's a relational God, has created space for our choices to matter. And for me, that gives me a great amount of purpose in my life and a sense of urgency, honestly, as well. The things that I do matter because God has said so. He set it up in a way that my choices and your choices matter. And so that gives me a sense of urgency and that gives me purpose with, with my life. I'm not just playing out a script that's already been written. I'm actively helping shape what God is doing in the world. When I think of God's sovereignty, that gives me comfort and that gives me hope, particularly when things are upside down when it seems like evil is winning, when I'm confused and disoriented. 
to be reminded that God is in control. Very comforting. My theology, that doesn't mean that God has uh, meticulously determined every decision that's being made. It's more like the picture of that conductor up there. He's able to take the work of the devil, and he's able to take the work of his son. He's able to take the work of people who love him, and he's able to take the work of people who are actively opposed to him. He's able to take all of those things together somehow in his wisdom and in his power and to bring all of those things together for the good of his people and to fulfill his purpose in the lives of his own people. It's amazing to me. I don't understand how. I just know that. That's what it means for God to work all things together for good. Not that God causes all things, but that God can redeem anything and use anything to accomplish his purposes in the lives of those who love him. And that gives me great comfort when I don't understand what he's doing or when it looks like evil is winning. To say, no, God is still in control. Jesus has won and he's going to return. His kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. He will wipe every tear from every eye. He will reverse every effect of the curse in the fall. He will finally destroy every root of sin in every life and in every community. Those things are going to happen. And even when I can't see that, I can take comfort in knowing that it's true, that God is sovereign, that he is in control. Again, not that he is, that we're puppets. And he's pulling all the strings. It's not that meticulous level of control in my theology. It's much more so that he is able in his power and in his wisdom to bring all of these things together. Things that he wants to happen and things that, are, that happen outside of his will. And he's somehow to, able to shape all of those things for the good of those who love him. And to accomplish his purposes in their life. Again, I don't understand it. But it gives me great comfort. The crucifixion is the best example. It's the greatest injustice ever on the face of the earth, and look what God brings out of it, the most beautiful salvation that we could ever imagine. A couple of caveats, if you find yourself this morning in that place where God's sovereignty would be a comfort to you, maybe you're in a wilderness time, you don't know up from down, and you certainly don't know your way out, maybe it looks like in your life, in a, at least in a particular situation, that evil's winning, maybe you say, I don't even see God, we don't see God's name mentioned at all in this Section, but yet we know he's active. The forest swallows up more than the sword. Absalom is destroyed. We see his fingerprints as we look back through it, even though it's anonymous. He doesn't attach his name to any of the activity. Maybe that's how you feel right now. I don't know where God's working. It seems like he's not working at all. A couple of caveats. One, sometimes it's not quick. For David, God works these things together in a matter of maybe weeks, months. Sometimes it's not that quick for us. It takes a lot longer for God to work all of those things together for our good. You can think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. You can go back and read that story. I think it picks up about in Genesis 36. He's called by God to have a significant role in saving his family. And there's a 13-year period where he's working as a slave in someone's house, and then he's, sold, then he's uh, thrown in jail, falsely accused of sexual assault. 13 years, he's basically forgotten. And then he's put in a position in Egypt, a position of authority, and it's 10 more years before his family is reconciled to him. You're talking about 23 years before Joseph can stand up and say, what y'all, my brothers, meant for evil, God intended for good to accomplish his purposes, the saving of many lives. 23 years it takes for God to work all of those circumstances together for Joseph's good and to accomplish his purpose in Joseph's life. And that may be your story. We love David and that quick one. We want it to be from one verse to the next. Sometimes it's not from one verse to the next. And I want to encourage you to persevere and to trust that even when you can't see God working, know that he is. Second caveat, the Romans 8 says God works all things together for our good, not all things together for our comfort, not all things together for our ease, and not all things together for our pleasure. God is much more interested in our character than our comfort. And what's best for us is to be conformed in the image of Jesus. That's the next verse. For those whom God, is for, those whom God foreknows, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So that's the work that he's doing in each one of us. He wants to conform and transform each one of us as much as possible into the image of Jesus, this side of heaven. So that's the work that he's doing as he's as he's working all things together for your good, in your mind, your good is to look as much like Jesus as possible. That's the highest good. 
That's the highest ideal. That's what God is always doing. If you ever wonder, God, what are you doing in my life? It's always safe to say that. You're conforming me into the image of Jesus. And sometimes that work is difficult. And sometimes that work is painful. And sometimes that work is unpleasant. It's still for our good. It just doesn't feel good. And I want to encourage you to not quit and to not give up. Recognize what he's doing. It's for your long-term best to look as much like Jesus as possible. And that is what he has predestined from the beginning of time. That's what he said I'm going to do for everyone who's mine. Jesus is the firstborn of a family and I'm going to, I'm going to form each of y'all as much into the family likeness as I can. That's what I'm doing. And sometimes that can be a painful process for us. So he's, again, he's working for our good, not necessarily for our pleasure or our comfort or our ease. If you find yourself this morning in one of those places, you don't know which way is up, take comfort that God is in control. Second thing we see, David's reaction to Absalom's death. He mourns. It's the reaction of a father. This is a tough thing to say. David missed it. We see a fundamental flaw. It may not be his, the fundamental flaw, It's a major flaw in David. What he's doing is he's reacting to this news as a father. He's not reacting as a king. He's wearing the wrong hat. And he's been wearing the wrong hat for the last decade in relationship to his sons. He's acting like a father. He's not acting like a king. Being a king is his calling, and that should trump. God has determined to bring disaster on Absalom, and David's not on board. David is saying to his generals, go easy on the boy. He's not a boy. He's a grown man who's committed cold-blooded murder, who has spent the last two years sowing seeds of discontent within the capital city, who has somehow rallied a large portion of the nation, not just to rebel against you, David, but against you as the one God has chosen. He is leading the people in rebellion against God. This is not a little boy. He's not a young man. And David's response is, go easy on him, while God is saying, I'm, bringing disa- I'm judging him. I'm judging him for this. There's a huge disconnect there. And it's totally understandable. We get it. We get it, why he responds as a father, but he misses it because he responds as a father. His, the way he mourns for Absalom, rather than recognizing God has not just delivered me as a father, God has delivered this nation. He has preserved the kingship for this nation. He's proven to all of the people in this nation that he can guard and protect his own. Can you imagine as a second king of Israel, if he is killed by his son, what that does moving forward for the monarchy? It's totally unstable. Well, God can't protect his people. I guess whoever's the strongest wins. There are massive implications here. And David misses all of them. He misses all of them. And again, it's understandable. But it's wrong. Tough but true. One of the hardest things I think Jesus says in all of the Gospels, Matthew 10. You've got to love me more than you love your family. If you're going to follow me, you've got to love me more than you love your spouse. You've got to love me more than you love your parents. You've got to love me more than you love your siblings. You've got to love me more than you love your kids. If you're going to follow me, you've got to love me first and most. And Luke, he says it even more strongly. He says, you've got to hate your family if you're going to follow me. And that's obviously, that's, that's hyperbole. It's relative. We love him so much that it would appear as if we hate our family. Matthew says it in a softer way. I think it's a more, it's a way that's easier for us to understand the meaning behind it. You've got to love me more than you love even your family. And David doesn't in this moment. He's loving Absalom more than he's loving God. He's falling in the, to the side of being a father much more so than the side of being a king. And in this moment, he's got to be a king. That's what trumps in this moment. We get the heartache he feels because he has a son who's dead. And at the same time, he's got to recognize his son is dead because he was rebelling not just against him, but against God. He was putting the entire nation at risk because of his desire to be the king in this moment. And the thing is, David knows better. He knows better. He's been in Absalom's shoes in some way. 
David was anointed to be the king when he was a teenager. And then he spends 12 or 13 or 15 years under Saul, who's been rejected by God, who is a terrible king, who is actively pursuing David to kill him for no other reason other than jealousy. At one point, David has an opportunity to kill Saul. He cuts a corner off the guy's robe. He's so convicted, the Bible says his heart hits him in the face. That's how convicted he is. Just for taking that one step of self-assertion. Just that one move that says, I should be the king. And David at least had the blessing of God on him as the anointed one. And he still says to all of his guys, we're not touching him. After his heart hits him in the face, he says to all of his guys, we're not touching him. He may be terrible. He may be treating us unjustly. I may be the one who's called. I may do a way better job than him. But right now, God has got him on the throne and only God can remove him. We're not, we're not speeding up the clock. Absalom, who has no word from God that he's going to be the king, has now decided it's my turn. I can do a better job. My father is not fit. I'm going to be the king. David knows how to treat those people. There was a, a, a soldier who came to him, a foreign guy who's a servant actually, comes to him and tells him in 2 Samuel 1, I killed Saul. It's a lie. Saul killed himself, but he's trying to get a reward. He says, I killed Saul. He was your enemy. He was going to die anyway, and so I killed him. And David's response is to have the guy killed. He says, you don't, you don't raise a hand against God's anointed. When he's ready for Saul to die, he'll kill him. But you certainly don't get to speed up the process. David knows better. He knows what Absalom's doing, but he can't bring himself to treat him like he should as the king. Those words from Jesus, again, so difficult. What does it look like for us? Where's the temptation for us to love our families more than we love Jesus? I was in Turkey, and I met a lady. She, she was, she's older than me, but she became a Christian when she was in high school, so I'm thinking of her as a girl. And she becomes a Christian in high school, and she goes to her father, who's a devout Muslim, and she says, I've converted. I'm following Jesus. And he says, here's $5. Don't you ever come back to this house again. And we hear stories like that, and we say, yes, that's the picture. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are leaving other faiths and whose family say, say you can't follow Jesus and still be in our family. That's who he's talking to. Absolutely, that's who he's talking to. But does he have anything to say to us? Is that warning only for people who are coming out of Islam? Or have some kind of militant faith? Or is it something to say to us here in the Bible Belt? I think maybe two images that would help. One is of following and one is of focus. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one. You're going to hate the other. His, the, the heart of his invitation to us is to follow him. And you can't follow two people at the same time unless they're going in the same direction. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. There's that idea. You follow me as I'm following him. With the implication being, if at any point I'm not imitating him, if at any point I'm not following him, then you need to diverge and you stick with him and not with me. I think of people maybe over on this side of the room in particular, people who are under the authority of another. And what does that look like to say, I've got to love Jesus more than I love these ones who God has put in authority over me? It means that there could very well come a time, maybe not, but there could be a time where there's a fork in the road. And in order to be obedient to the Lord, you have to be willing to disappoint your parents. Not easy to do. We always honor our parents. There's no time limit on that. You don't honor your parents until you turn 18. You don't honor your parents until they quit paying for your stuff. You honor your parents until they die. And so as we still seek to know what it is to honor our parents, there very well can be a fork in the road where to obey the Lord causes disappointment for them. It would cause us even on some level, if you can say it that way, to disobey them in some level, to not do exactly what they want. And that's a very... that's a tough place to be and that's a decision that's not made lightly and that's a decision that's absolutely made in the context of community and before the Lord completely submitted but it can happen at times I was reading in something the other day about a family who was incredibly active in supporting missions until their son graduated from high school and said I'm going and they said no you're not you're going to college get a good job and you support missions you don't get to go there's a fork in the road at that point, isn't there? 
It's difficult. That's a decision that has to be wrestled through, and I don't say any of that lightly. Having four kids, I certainly don't want them coming up to me and saying, hey, God's told me to drop out of school or whatever that may be. But as parents, we need to recognize. I want to be able to say to my kids, follow me as I'm following him. But there may be a point where I'm not. And you got to pick him over me. Tough to say. But we don't want to make it difficult for our kids to follow him. If you're under authority, it could be that there's a fork in the road. It's rare, but it could happen. For, for those of you who are heads of household, I think maybe the idea of focus is better. There's only one place in the Bible where marriage and singleness are placed side by side. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, and singleness is actually commended in terms of it allows people to stay more committed to Jesus. They're able to stay focused on him. Paul says that when you're married, your focus is divided. You're trying to please your spouse and you're trying to please the Lord. When you're single, you're just trying to please the Lord. So if, it's, if, if the only thing that matters is pleasing the Lord, then being single is better than being married. That's the, that's the sum of that argument. Marriage is a gift and children are a gift, so don't hear me saying that, but we need to all recognize that when we're in a family situation, if you're a head of household type person, if you're parents, we'll say it that way, then your focus is divided. Your focus is divided between the Lord and your spouse and your children. That's just the way it is, and it can't be otherwise. And we need to recognize that and acknowledge that and then say, so what do I do about that? What is my response to the fact that my focus is divided? You've given me this person in, who, who I love and who I'm committed to and these kids who I love and who I'm committed to, but how does that impact the fact or that, that my focus is divided? And I'm not just thinking about pleasing you anymore. I'm thinking about pleasing her or him and them. So what am I supposed to do? The word priority was introduced in the English language in, 1400, in the 1400s, and it was singular. It means first thing. In the 1900s, we made it plural, which is stupid. You can't have more than one first thing. But we're us, and we think we can change reality just by changing the definition of a word. You can't do that. We can't have more than one first thing. So what does it look like to say, Jesus, you're my first thing? I have these other relationships that are incredibly important, that are gifts from you, that require time and attention and resources from me, and yet I'm going to say you're my first thing. You're my priority. What would you say to that mom and dad? What does that look like for you in your own life? Some of you have multiple kids under eight. It's terrible. It will get better. They wear you out. So to think about, I'm going to have to get up earlier. You're not even sleeping now. You take four cat naps. That's what you get. What are you going to do? You've got to ask him, what does it look like with all of my physical energy being expended, chasing these three or four or whatever it is? What does it look like for you to be my priority? Some of you, you're, you're looking at, braces and cars and college and you're like there's not i there's not enough here in the account for all of that what does it look like for you to make jesus a priority when so many of your resources are going to take care of those things what does that look like it's easy to say wake up a little earlier curb the vacation a little bit those things are easy to say, but before the Lord, as mom and dad, are you asking God, what does it look like in this season of my life for you to be a priority? The answer is never. The answer is never. Well, I'll figure that out later. Never. I promise you, anything that you give to him, time, money, attention, energy, he will give back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. No one is a worse spouse or a worse parent because they're spending more time and more energy and more attention on Jesus. No one is. It only makes you better because he makes you better. So what does that practically look like 
not motivated by guilt, not driven by the expectations of other people, but you as a son or daughter of the Lord saying, God, this is what you've given me. This is where I am in life. How do I prioritize you? Are you even asking the question? Would you ask the question this morning? You may not need to change one thing. You may say you're crushing it. I know that I'm first. I know I'm first. I know I am. You just keep doing what you're doing. He may say, I don't know. Your focus is divided a bit too much. You're giving me the leftovers. I'm getting the scraps. Make me first. Watch what I do in these other relationships if you'll make me first. They all run better anyway. Let's take a minute and pray. We almost ran out of time. Two things I want you to think about. One, you need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Do you need comfort and hope this morning? Are you going, there's a situation in my life and I don't see him. I don't sense him. I don't hear him. It looks like the enemy's winning. Could you bring that situation before him and say, God, I'm asking you to work all of these things together for my good and to accomplish your purposes in my life. Not because I'm great, but because you said you would. Would you give me grace to persevere? I don't want to quit. If it's 23 years, I don't want it to be 23 years, but if it's 23 years, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay faithful. Would you give me eyes to see what you're doing? And God, would you use this to conform me more into the image of your son? You may want to pray that prayer this morning. You may be someone who's under the authority of another. Middle school, high school, college, for whatever reason, maybe under the authority of another. And you may just want to say before the Lord, God, I want to submit to the authorities that you've placed in my life. I want to recognize them whether or not I see them as holy or spiritual or righteous. I recognize you've placed them in my life. And so I want to submit to them as far as submitting to them is submitting to you. God, if there's a fork in the road, I pray, I want to know that. But you've got to show me. I think maybe our tendency actually is to use that as an excuse to do our own thing. And so before the Lord, you may just want to say, God, my commitment is to follow you. I don't want to serve two masters. Show me if there is a fork in my life right now, what it would look like to honor you and to live with the consequences of doing that. Those of you who are parents, you may want to say before the Lord, God, help me to prioritize you. God, I pray that you would give me power to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your love for me. And as I understand that love on a deeper and deeper level, that would fuel me to prioritize you. And I confess, I don't know. There's not enough hours in the day, God. You've got to show me what does it look like. Not driven by guilt, not comparing myself to other people, but as a son or a daughter before you. God, you know my heart, you know my posture towards you. Would you give me grace to rightly order my loves? So Holy Spirit, would you come now, would you speak to us? I pray that you would encourage and that you would uplift. I pray that you would bind up any hearts that are broken. God, I pray for those who are just snowed under with the obligations of their home. I pray that you would show them. They would hear you saying, you would show them what is it to find rest for their souls, to come to you and to find rest for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. Bo's going to close us with a song. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on.